Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to this month's Chess Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the host of the Chess Podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on lung cancer screening. Today, as our guests, we are fortunate to have uh, Dr. Tony Gabino and Anton Maniak, the authors of this Chess publication. The publication is entitled invasive procedures associated with lung cancer screening in clinical practice. So we'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves. Um, Tony? Yeah, my name is Tony Gerbino, and I'm a pulmonary critical care physician at Virginia Mason Medical Center in uh, Seattle. I've been uh, at Virginia Mason for over 20 years, and uh, I'm a full-time clinician who occasionally gets involved in uh, some research projects. Perfect. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. And Anton? Uh, I'm Anton Maniak. I'm currently a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Loma Linda University. I did my med school at the University of Vermont and then went to do my internal medicine residency at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. That's where I met Dr. Gerbino, and that's when we began working on this project. An absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Uh, today we'll be discussing a really important uh, topic, that of lung cancer screening and its implications, um, and specifically focusing on complications related to invasive procedures. So Anton, maybe you can kick us off. Uh, we do lung cancer screening. Um, what are the risks of performing versus not performing invasive procedures with lung cancer screening? Yeah, so the main risks of performing invasive procedures is that there is cost and harm associated with them, uh, especially when performed for false positive findings. Um, and at the same time, there's unclear benefit when performed on incidental findings. The main risk of not performing invasive procedures is uh, the possible introduction of delays to a diagnosis of malignancy, which could result in diagnosis at a later stage with associated increase in mortality. This is in the backdrop of recent focus on associations of poor outcomes when there is delay from diagnosis to treatment in a predominantly incidentally found lung cancer population. However, how this pertains to lung cancer screening and expediency of workup of pulmonary nodules identified on lung cancer screening CTs is unclear at this point. Regardless, balancing these risks is the key to a quality cancer screening program, and we feel that as one such program, we must focus on maybe, and maybe even err, on the side of minimizing unnecessary invasive procedures on benign disease rather than catching the most malignancies as we can, especially while the adoption of lung cancer screening has been slow, and as others are looking to programs like ours to prove to them that lung cancer screening works and does so well. So let me play devil's advocate here. Um, we know that lung cancer is a huge problem, that a lot of people are dying of lung cancer, and lung cancer screening is suboptimal. Some may argue that we need to look for lung cancer and adopt a more invasive approach because we're obviously missing a whole bunch of patients um, that need to have a diagnosis of lung cancer in order to improve their survival. Why do you think their argument is wrong, or how would you respond to that argument, Anton? Um, uh, the way that I would put it is that if you look at lung cancer uh, statistics over the past um, 
decade or so, our numbers really haven't changed uh, in terms of mortality. And despite improvement in treatments, uh, uh, improvement in diagnostic techniques and imaging modalities. Um, that said, however, if you look at lung cancer screening, that's where the mortality shift has really been seen. And when you look at the overall um, uh, uh, uptake and how many people are uh, participating in lung cancer screening, I believe it's somewhere in the single digits of all qualifying people or patients. So if we really want to move the needle of uh, lung cancer mortality, I think the focus should be on trying to get as many uh, patients in lung cancer screening as we can. And um, as I was saying before, um, I think there is uh, quite a bit of hesitancy in getting people into these programs because uh, we believe that maybe um, uh, uh, those who are going to be enrolling like primary care physicians are not doing so because they don't think that the programs will be successful. And um, therefore, we need to prove to them that uh, that we can be doing everything uh, with minimal um, uh, uh, minimal invasive procedures on benign disease. And Dominique, I, I would just summarize to say that the success of lung cancer screening is really um, critically uh, is really based on balancing harms and benefits and and the potential for harm because of all the false positive and incidental findings is is quite high and and um, just how high it is I think uh, has been debated and I think you know we'll we'll talk about results of our paper and other papers that suggest it can be kept appropriately low. But I think addressing that um, concern r right now, that th that has, is really the thing that we need to focus on to prove that lung cancer can, can be done uh, safely. And once we've done that, then it's, then it's time to look at, uh, you know, nodule um, management algorithms and say, can we improve these so we can get the diagnosis faster without actually increasing, increasing harm? Yeah, I think, Tony, you bring a really important issue, that of uh, responsible care. And maybe uh, we can just tease it out a little bit more. Um, there's this issue of, with lung cancer screening, we're looking for lung nodules that are potentially cancerous. But a lot of the time, and sometimes up to 60% of the time, or 40% of the time, uh, these lung nodules are actually not cancerous. They're benign lesions. And in that subgroup, there's a group of patients that have benign conditions where we actually need to know the diagnosis, and maybe it's benign, but it's not. Uh, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. And then there's another subgroup where it's benign, and maybe we didn't really need to know what the nodule was. Maybe you could comment on that, because th that really is the centerpiece of your paper here, this issue of false positives. Yeah, that's that's right. And, um, you know, we, we actually got into this study because we, uh, with, with healthcare uh, consolida consolidation in the marketplace, we um, had come in contact with a new set of primary care providers who we then tried to introduce to lung cancer screening. And they and they told us, you know, we don't really believe this is the right thing to do. Uh, at that time, the American Academy of Family Practitioners had not endorsed lung cancer screening. And, and I think they were right to say that we don't know how you guys can handle all of these these findings that we think we're going to be overwhelmed and we think that the harm to patients may be, you know, may be high. And, and they weren't the only ones that were, were saying that. Uh, you know, there were academicians and healthcare services people who were saying, when we go from clinical trials to community practice, these numbers are going to go up. And there's even data looking at nodule um, evaluation 
um, in insurance claims data that say that that our utilization of procedures is much higher outside of clinical trials. So, so we said, you know, we're, we're going to um, take a look at and see how we're we're doing uh, when it comes to uh, uh, working up uh, nodules that turn out to be false positives. How often do we intervene? And as we were were doing that, we realized that there were quite a few uh, procedures that were occurring outside of false positive nodules. And, and some of these were uh, findings outside the, the lung that looked like they were malignancy and, and got worked up and turned out that they were false positives. And, and others were, uh, you know, incidental findings such as um, uh, uh, coronary artery calcifications or interstitial uh, lung disease that that led to procedures, and when we looked at the existing literature, um, you know, incidental findings were quite common, but the procedural burden really wasn't clear. And then in some papers that where the procedural burden was was um, uh, detailed, it was hard to tell when the procedures were being done to work up malignancy, where you want to work up everything as completely as possible. You want to you, you know want to understage uh, uh, patients. And, and when it was being done for a, a finding outside of the setting of malignancy. And so we, we decided that not only would we look at our performance uh, for false positive lung nodules and our invasive pr- procedures for that entity, but we would look at invasive procedures for uh, lesions that were suspicious for malignancy outside the lung, but turned out to be nothing. So false positive findings outside the lung. Um, and then we'd look at our, our the number of invasive procedures for these incidental findings that we, we termed non-malignant, uh, but of clinical significance. Um, and they led to procedures and their value was really un- unclear to me and their volume uh, the volume was unclear to us as well. And so that's how we, we framed our study and that's what motivated it. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, explanation as to why you performed your study. Um, Ansa, let's bring you back into the discussion here. Maybe you could um, tell our audience what were your study methods and specifically uh, what did you classify as a false positive? Yeah, so this was a retrospective single center review of a community program with a lung cancer screening program in it. Just to kind of um, elaborate on that, um, I do want to say that our program uh, has a full-time uh, nurse coordinator that helps us run it. And we do have a hybrid model with central oversight where primary care physicians can order lung cancer screening CT scans um, and then concerning findings get reviewed by a multidisciplinary team, which consists of thoracic radiologists, thoracic surgeons, and pulmonologists. Um, and in the beginning of uh, our study, we were initially reviewing all um, lung rat 4 scans, but due to time constraints, later transitioned to a model where we were um, only reviewing lung rats 4B and 4X as a full multidisciplinary team. And the 4As were then reviewed by either a group or an individual pulmonologist. Um, and uh, uh, when we we're looking for, uh, when we're trying to get our database, we queried multiple procedural and imaging databases to identify our lung cancer screening uh, or lung cancer screening patients uh, that had either a lung rats 4 scan, a PET scan, or found to have a malignancy or had an invasive procedures. Um, and those uh, patients were further reviewed um, by me and Dr. Garbino. So um, uh, our, uh, um, uh, when we were looking at all the procedures that were done, just like Dr. Garbino mentioned, 
we separated them basically into four groups. There were procedures done on uh, anyone with a malignancy. And then the rest of the three groups, they were done. Uh, there were procedures who were done on patients who did not have malignancy. And from there, we looked at uh, pulmonary nodules. So these were considered uh, false positive pulmonary nodules. Uh, we looked at extra pulmonary findings that uh, had an invasive procedure with the intention of trying to figure out if there is a malignancy. Um, and then any invasive procedure done uh, for some other finding, uh, that's the, those are the ones that we termed as non-malignant findings of clinical significance. And uh, uh, we'll also sometimes refer to them as incidentals. Gotcha. And then, Tony, do you want to jump in? Um, any clarifying comments on uh, what a false positive was? And then maybe for our audience who aren't familiar with the lung red scoring, what is a 4A, a 4B, and a 4X? Uh, so, um, oh, for, you know, for the lung reds, boy, I'm, I'm not sure I can tell you right off the top of my head um, what, the, what the 4A nodule is. I believe it's 8 millimeters uh and and below um uh if it's uh a annual scan so a second scan and and it's a new nodule then it would or uh, um the size criteria is a little bit smaller um and uh, obviously if it's if it's growing or, or if it's of, a, of it's a larger size and it's a a 4b and then the 4x sort of lump with 4b but um that category has changed recently so um that may that may be a little bit more difficult for me to detail um in uh, uh, appropriately right now um i i was i will say with regard to uh the false positives uh you know there there are some uh procedures where you know you we could have called it one thing or another that was sort of right on the edge and so for instance you know we had uh, a nodular infiltrate that uh you know turned out turned out to be um, an area of bronchiectasis, uh, and underwent, underwent a procedure, but the primary concern was malignancy. So we, we call that a false, you know, a false positive. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, there was somebody, you know, for an example would be someone with a PET scan who had some uptake in the GI tract and, uh, colonoscopy was performed and there was a, a large, you know, tubulovillus adenoma removed. And so we wouldn't call that a false positive because uh, some some uh, clinical value was uh, obtained from the procedure. We would say that that was a, a, a you know incidental finding that was uh, with a procedure that was done that that we would classify as being of value because appropriate treatment uh, was was performed. Sure. So let's jump into your key findings, Tony. Uh, what did you find, um, and how did you interpret it? Yeah. So. Um, uh, you know, we had uh, about 2,000 patients. The uh, demographics of the patients was similar to that in the NLST. Um, 5% of our of the participants in the lung cancer screening program underwent an invasive procedure. Um, but we separate out those into you know, folks with malignancy where nearly 100% of patients underwent an proce uh, invasive procedure and those without malignancy. And of those without malignancy, uh, 1.7% or 17 in, in 1,000 uh, underwent an invasive procedure. And, and again, the categories there are false positive lung nodules, which I'm going to talk about now. And then Dr. Maniak will, will come back and, and uh, uh, later and talk about the, the incidentals and the false positives outside the lung. So 
With regard to false positive uh, nodules in the lung, um, two in 1,000 uh, patients underwent surgical resection for these uh, benign uh, nodules, and that's a 12% uh, benign surgical resection rate. And then two in 1,000 uh, underwent either bronchoscopy or CT uh, guided needle biopsy. I should add that the complication rate in all of the invasive procedures performed for benign disease was 1.5 in in 1,000. So um, if, if you look at this procedure rate and you try to put it in perspective of what, what else has been in the literature, you know, the first thing that people talk about are, are the NLST, where false positive nodules were uh, found in, uh, we had an invasive procedure in 17 in 1,000. So our rate is quite a bit lower than that. Six in 1,000 uh, underwent uh, surgery and their benign resection rate was 24%. In the Dutch-Belgian lung cancer screening trial or Nelson trial, they had an identical benign resection rate to NLST of 24%. Um, six to seven per thousand underwent uh, surgery for a benign nodule. And then as part of their protocol, they performed routine bronchoscopy. So 18 in a thousand underwent bronchoscopy. And they actually, before the Nelson results were published, had published a paper saying that this should not be part of the the protocol. And so the, you know, the question is, where do our results sort of fall in, in the spectrum of um, invasive procedure rates? And are they an aberration? Or are they something that we should be that other programs should obtain, and we should obtain? And, you know, there's a nice summary by Jonas, who um, in JAMA, um, uh, who was summarizing evidence in preparation for the US Preventive Health Task Force analysis that led to the expanded uh, LCS criteria. And he he detailed uh, invasive procedure rates for benign disease in from 14 studies through uh, early uh, 2020. And there's quite a, a range. Now, 13 of the 14 of these were were clinical trials. Um, you know, but the the range, you look at the range, and it's really hard to, to tell um, uh, uh, what what the true rate of invasive procedures are. So for instance, for surgical resections, um, anywhere from uh, from one uh, to um, uh, 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 hundred per I'm sorry uh, uh, ten per thousand surgical re- resections for uh, chest procedures 0.5 to 1.3 percent and for CT guided needle biopsies 0.1 to 0.6 percent and for any individual program it's a little hard to tell how many combined procedures they were they were doing. Um, uh, but if you look at more recent data, I think the the recent studies, you know, really show findings that are similar to to ours. And and there's a publication by Ho from the Leahy Clinic in in 2021 that that um, have a has a surgical procedure rate of 0.4 percent for benign nodules, or four in a thousand, with a 17 percent benign resection rate. And then a, a, a UK uh, publication of two clinical trials, uh, two pilot projects, and a and one clinical uh, program that of, of eleven thousand patients, a large number of patients, where they did less than one in a thousand uh, surgeries for benign nodules. The procedure rate was five to six per thousand, and their benign resection rate was was five percent. So really, you know, outstanding. Results and and then down just down the road from from you and me, Dominique in Portland, the the cancer center there actually published in a family practice journal. I think I think uh, responding to the same audience that 
prompted our study, um, two in a thousand surgeries were performed for benign nodules with a 12% benign resection rate. And that, and that is community practice. And so I, I think when we put um, our results in the perspective of, of the most recent data, uh, it, it looks like that that's, that's where we are in lung cancer screening with lung cancer uh, screening programs um, and multidisciplinary uh, uh, review uh, and, uh, and oversight. Uh, these are the results that we expect to, to get. And I think it's very encouraging uh, that we see this in a community uh, uh, program. Um, and I think it, it, you know, it, it eliminates, uh, or, uh, adds another piece of evidence to the concern that we're going to do too many invasive procedures for these findings. I think that is really important to the fact that we can reassure our primary care providers, family physicians that uh, these procedures are safe, that we're not doing them excessively. Um, maybe Tony, you could just comment on the role of different technologies. We, we've seen a change in technology over the last 20 years. Um, from navigation um, platforms to robotic platforms, and now they're using comb beam CT. Uh, what do you think? Uh, how do you think that will impact? Um, uh, whether you think more invasive procedures will be performed, um, their safety. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. And we, you know, we had in our study we had sort of drilled down on invasive invasive procedure rates for lung rads for a uh, nodules, where we were very patient and uh, concordant with lung rads guidelines for those. For those nodules and in it, you know, I don't really know what the right, uh, target is in terms of the number of procedures because I think it's a, a moving target, as you suggest, because of our, our technology. Um, I think we're, you know, we, we will, and, and our patient population, we, you know, we will have younger, uh, patients as lung cancer screening populations uh, mature. We're going to have more, uh, uh, annual scans and baseline scans, which, which changes the way we think about nodules that may have grown and, and perhaps it changes the way, way we think about their aggressiveness. And then when we have diagnostic techniques that become more and more accurate uh, and safe, uh, I think we're going to use them more. So I, I think, you know, robotic and navigational uh, bronchoscopy with uh, same procedure mediastinal uh, staging is going to allow us to have greater confidence in knowing whether a nodule is benign or or malignant. And, and I, I think, you know, we're going to see that procedure used more. It may be ap appropriate to use it more even for benign disease, but in turn, I think we'll see uh, benign surgical resections go down uh, with, with that technology. So I, I think all of these, and, and, and I think actually the other thing that's important in terms of technology is that the lung rads algorithms are changing. And so when you and I, Dominic, look at a uh, you know, a 4A nodule, you know, we look at 4A nodules sometimes a quick look, you say, ah, that's, that's nothing. Um, and, but other 4A nodules we will worry more about. And as the lung rads guidelines and nodule management guidelines become more sophisticated, those nodules are no longer in, in those categories. Uh, and so the, uh, I think Regis, uh, in the annals ATS recently has, uh, shown that the, the rate of malignancy in lung rads 4A nodules has increased. Uh, it didn't increase in our, in our paper where it was 8%, but as that number goes up, the number of an interventions for those nodules, uh, should go up as well. So I think it's a moving target, but I, I think my recommendation would be that, you know, programs need to measure what their rates are. We don't know what the appropriate target is, but if you're not measuring it, you don't know what it is and you can't uh, improve or adjust on, on what you're doing. 
I think that's a really important point. <laughs> the technology has advanced at such a phenomenal rate and the studies haven't kept up. And as you've said, some of the guidelines haven't kept up with the uh, ability for us to do stuff that we wouldn't have dreamt of uh, several years ago. Anton, I want to bring you into the conversation again. Um, maybe you could comment on what your findings were for incidental nodules and how you interpreted that. Yeah, so um, when we looked at our incidental findings, what we found is that we performed just as many invasive procedures on both extrapulmonary false positives uh, as we did for false positive pulmonary nodules, which was about 0.4% or 4 in 1,000. Um, and then when we looked at procedures performed on uh, non-malignant findings of clinical significance or incidentals, uh, they accounted for more than half of all procedures on benign disease, which was uh, 0.95 or um, uh, um, or 9.5 in a thousand. So um, uh, these procedures uh, were done to evaluate, um, or the procedures done to evaluate incidental findings uh, led to a change in management in 68% of patients and a change in diagnosis in an additional 11%. So uh, kind of my interpretation of these results is that all in all, these procedures on extrapulmonary and incidental findings were still infrequent um, and lower than previously reported, um, specifically thinking about a report from Cleveland Clinic by Morgan uh, in 2017, who reported about 3% of uh, procedure rate on incidental findings in patients without malignancy. Um, but at the same time, we uh, also believe that um, because uh, there is such a heavy burden, um, relatively speaking, uh, for procedures on uh, incidental findings that uh, maybe coming up with a standardized approach to management of these findings uh, would uh, be beneficial to the lung, lung cancer screening community, um, as this would um, probably overall reduce uh, the amount of invasive procedures on these findings and decrease variability across uh, the different practices. And Dominic, I would also... I would also add that the American College of Radiology has uh, a quick reference guide for uh, lung cancer screening programs that, that details uh, uh, management of, of incidentals per ACR white papers, and that can be very helpful to programs as they navigate these incidentals or, and, and, you know, and negotiate, you know, what to do with coronary calcifications with their cardiology departments, uh, uh, for example. Definitely. Uh, we definitely need to make sure we're keeping up to date with the uh, literature. Um, Anton, maybe you could comment on the key limitations of your study. Um, I think you've said before that uh, this was a single center. It was done 2016 to 2019. Um, technology has changed since then. And um, your target population was um, uh, 55 to 77, 30 pack of smoking history, which uh, and the guidelines have changed since uh, for uh, lung cancer screening. Yeah, uh, in addition to that, I think what I would say is uh, um, the uh, we did not capture procedures that were performed outside of our medical center. So, for example, um, I think there were um, eight, I want to say, patients that transferred care um, after a lung rads uh, for skin to a different facility. So um, that's part of that. Um, um, uh, we talked about the fact that our population is uh, fairly homogenous and was similar to NLST, and that may change with the new recommendations for who we sh should for who we should be screening. 
Um, and the other limitation is that about 80% of our cancers were found on baseline rather than annual scans, which must, uh, might bias to longer delays as we're finding more indolent cancers on these scans. Um, the other thing that I would mention is, um, although it may not be quite a limitation, um, I do want to mention the fact that although one of our main messages is that lung cancer screening can be done safely in a community practice, uh, our practice is that uh, with a, uh, or our community setting is within, or we have a lung cancer screening program and the infrastructure necessary for nodule tracking and multidisciplinary review for it. So although we are not a university nor a clinical trial, uh, generalization generalizability of our data may be limited to community programs who have this kind of infrastructure as well. Those are really important limitations to mention. And then the final question, maybe you could comment on the delays uh, in care. Uh, Tony? Yeah, so that's uh, one of the, uh, I think, uh, what was initially surprising finding to to us is that, you know, when we saw our low invasive procedure rates, the first question that we we asked our was, are we sitting on these nodules for too long and should we be more aggressive? And so we looked at uh, the delay to diagnosis from the first lung rads for uh, category scan that, you know, didn't revert to a normal to a normal scan. And what we found was that for lung rads 4B and 4X, you know, we had delays of, of 55 days, median delays of 55 days. Um, and, and then we looked in the literature to say, you know, is this, is this expected? Is this what we should, we should get? And, um, really only one paper had found, uh, similar delays. I, I actually, it looks like the ACR lung cancer screening registry, uh, for these category nodules also uh, shows a 64 to 65 day delay uh, for 4B and 4X. Um, but the real surprising finding is when you looked at LungRAD's 4A uh, nodules and, uh, and our median delay was 154 d- uh, days. And that was very similar to what the Leahy uh, Clinic had reported, which is the only other number that has been in the literature. And, you know, and, and when we looked at that, we thought, wow, that's a really in a long time, but really what that is, is the 4B and 4X delays of 55 days plus the 90 days that LungRads rec- recommends. And so it, you know, it, it looked, looked like we were following, uh, the LungRads guidelines for 4A nodules, which was, you know, holding off on, on biopsy, um, after nine, you know, and, and doing a CT surveillance for 90 days. And when we looked at our LungRads 4As, that's what we, we did. We only biopsied 1% of benign lung rads for a nodules. Um, but I, you know, I think the, the question that this raises is, is, is that okay? Um, it's, I think we're, we're certainly minimizing harms, but can we do better? Can we minimize harms, but, but get those delays down? And how important is it to get down, down those delays? And, you know, I, I have, uh, my, I have a bias and I have a sort of anecdotal impression from watching these nodules change very little during CT surveillance, but I don't think we really know the answer, uh, to that. And I know one of the, uh, letters to the editor for our, our paper, you know, said, you know, you know, hey, we know that within stage uh, 1A, T1 status makes a difference, whether a nodule is less than a centimeter, more than a centimeter, more than two centimeters. And are we seeing that change in size while we're watching LungRads 4A nodules? 
And the, and the answer is we don't know, uh, uh, you know whether that is uh, whether there's that much change uh, in these nodules, which, you know, screen detected nodules are less aggressive. Their biologic behavior, you know, should be more indolent due to length time effect. Um, but we don't know how important those delays are. So I think, uh, you know, detailing these these delays in, in this paper and, and in, I think in the in the Regis paper as well uh, from the Leahy Clinic, you know, suggests that we need to, to look a little bit more closely at these delays and uh, and what they mean for patient outcomes. Then I think you bring up a really important issue because um, there is this perception that on the CAT scan, we've seen very little change in the lung nodule, which you referenced to. Um, but what we do know is that when pay, and there's a paper published in the NEJM by Altoki et al., which showed that patients who had peripheral stage 1A lung cancer underwent uh, supposedly curative lung cancer resection had recurrence rates of up to 30%, and that has been replicated elsewhere. So that's the one point. Uh, we, we think these patients are getting cured from cancer, but they're actually having recurrence uh, up to rates of 30%. The other is when they've done biomarker testing, um, there is concern that, uh, yeah, the lung nodule isn't increasing in size, but are we seeing um, a deposit of tumor cells elsewhere in the body, micro deposits um, uh, that is going into the blood, spreading elsewhere? When you do these biomarker tests, we'll be getting feedback that these cancer cells may be traveling elsewhere. Um, and maybe we're falsely reassured by the fact that we um, are doing little harm, uh, but we also may be uh, causing harm by delaying. Oh, what would your response to that be? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that's it's it's all biologically plausible, but we don't really know uh, the answer. I think we need long-term outcomes uh, to uh, to really answer that question. And uh, but I'm but I'm um, uh, encouraged by um, some of the publications, uh, particularly those from the ILCAP program that have published um, longer-term uh, data. And, uh, and have public, have looked at, you know, tumor size within their 1A group. And it, you know, and it, 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 their, their results would suggest that these early, early stage uh, cancers really are cured at, at very high rates. So I don't think we know. I think the IL Cup data is, is, um, reassuring, uh, with regard to the fact that we're doing well with the very early stage cancers, but, uh, but we don't know for sure. Definitely have a lot of work to do there. Tony, so let's uh, sum this up. You performed the study. To distill this for our audience, what take-home message would you want them to have on why your study is meaningful uh, for clinical practice? Yeah, so I would say that in the context of a lung cancer screening program that includes multi multidisciplinary review, nodule tracking, uh, some, some coordinator uh, um, oversight, that uh, in incidental findings, uh, particularly false positive, Sorry, false positive nodules can be safely and and non-invasively uh, uh, evaluated, um, and that this can this can be done outside of clinical trials, uh, outside of traditional academic settings. Um, you know, and from a very broad point of view, you know, I think this is just a, you know another piece of accumulating evidence of of more recent uh, uh, publications. That show with modern day nodule uh, management um, and the the expected infrastructure for a lung cancer screening program. These are the results that that we're going to get. 
Yeah, that's really important. And I think kudos to you and your team for, you know, actually exploring this topic, which uh, was a vexation for uh, family uh, physicians and primary care physicians. And I think you've answered this really well in a community setting. And then second, kudos uh, to you for having your fellow come on and uh, speak on the podcast and share his findings. Um, He is the first author, and I really appreciate both of you uh, coming onto the podcast with us. Great. Thank you very much, Dominique. Appreciate the opportunity. And thank you, Anton. Thank you as well. So a big thank you to Drs. Gabino and Dr. Maniak for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. This article was entitled Invasive Procedures Associated with Lung Cancer Screening and Clinical Practice. I definitely encourage you to read it. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a CHESS podcast. <laughs>